Well, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you, band, for leading us in worship. And I trust our hearts would just be open to the word of the Lord and that our hearts would just be submissive, willing to do whatever God has for us. Um, they were mentioning that I'm from Gospel Grace Church. Gospel Grace Church got started downtown, Salt Lake City, 2012. And uh, we were able to be part of a church revitalization down in Riverton, which is Gospel Hope. And during uh, COVID, we planted Gospel Peace Church up in Logan. And then just this Sunday, uh, we've been uh, a part of, but, um, but just this Sunday, uh, Gospel Light Church in Rose Park um, is uh, kicking off a name change. And uh, they were uh, a church that was uh, been in the valley for a long time. And uh, Gospel Grace was able to partner with them. We sent over about 70 folks from the church and uh, are going to be a part of that local church as well. And uh, it's just our heart for the valley. I've done a lot of research about the different churches and the status of evangelicalism in, in Salt Lake. And uh, it's just my heart that there just be more and more true followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, so it's our joy just to call, come alongside you and uh, just support you as you guys are in a pastoral a lead pastoral change or uh, transition, and it's just been our desire just to say, oh, great, can we help? Can we serve? And so I'm glad that I'm able to come over here. I think uh, one of the pastors from Gospel Peace is coming down. Another pastor from Gospel Grace is coming over. I know uh, uh, somebody preached from Gospel Hope as well already, and so we just love you, and we're just, we're just so thankful to uh, just serve, and we hope that as we keep on working through John that we just realize that actually... Uh, it's the Word of God that works. It's the Word of God that changes us. And though we've had different personalities and different people and different preachers, um, it's, it's not the person that builds the church of God. It's Jesus Christ. And uh, His Word is the means of grace to get that accomplished. I hope that you just are reminded uh, after this morning that Jesus is in control. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your life is at. I don't know your stories. I'm just a guest speaker. I don't know all the backstory, but this I know, Jesus is in control. Always, I've always loved history. I've loved World War II history, and I, I remember coming across Stephen Ambrose. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that name, but he's, a, he's just a phenomenal writer. He's now uh, passed away, but he talked about the 101st Airborne. And he talked about the, the 506 Regiment and this group of men who came from all different places over the United States. There was farmers and coal miners and mountain men and sons of the Deep South, and they just all wanted to take the fight to the Germans. And they began to assemble July 10th, 1942, but they wouldn't see combat until June 6, 1944. And so for two years, there's nonstop drills, training, exercises, and they were to become the best of the best. They're confident, they're full of bravado, and yet they have no clue what's going to hit them. And June 6 at 1 a.m., they're all loaded up in planes, DC planes, DC-3 planes, and as they come across the French coast, all hell breaks loose. All sorts of anti-aircraft starts firing up at them. They're bouncing and weaving. The men are yelling. They're saying, let's get out of here. They just want to get out of the planes. They're only at 600 feet, and the 40-millimeter anti-aircraft tracers are coming closer and closer. 
Sergeant Lipton, he said, about the time the tracers were popping right past the, the rear of the plane, he said, I jumped out and it's a full moonlit night. Tracers are everywhere. As he's looking at the sky floating down just a few hundred feet, he sees the lead plane get hit. It tumbles to the right. It hits a hedgerow. It, it, it bursts into flames. The entire leadership section of Easy Company just died. They had not put one man into combat, and yet this company of soldiers had already lost its commander. On a similar moon-filled night, 1,900 years earlier, the disciples had no clue what was going to hit them. They'd been following Jesus for three years. They'd seen him perform miracles. One even walked on water. They'd seen Jesus cause the blind to see, the lame to walk, the dead to live. Remind yourself, even though it's taken Church of the Valley months, actually, I was looking on your website years to get through John. From John 13 through 17, in real time, that dialogue in those chapters took place over one meal, just three hours, three hours for three chapters. And can you imagine, just think with me, what have we learned over the last few months about what we've heard in John? It all happened in three hours. The disciples' brains were spinning. Their adrenaline was pumping. There's all sorts of things going on. In this short time, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. He revealed that Judas was to betray them. Peter then eventually, and that Peter would deny him. Philip and John, uh, Philip and Thomas were rebuked. Heaven was teased out. The Holy Spirit had been promised. Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, John 17, and they watched Judas leave for uncertain reasons. And so when Jesus led them to a familiar garden, you could understand why they were ready to sleep. They were low on energy. Their brains are maxed out. They're out of juice relationally, emotionally, and mentally. The other gospel writers tell us that when Jesus went to the garden and pray, the disciples couldn't keep up. Keep up. They didn't know what Jesus knew. In just a short while, all hell was going to break loose. Satan was storming up that mountain with his frenzy, bloodlust, and min minions. Jesus knew that he was to be captured, led to his death. He knew his disciples were to be scattered and their confidence shattered. Jesus knew that what was hanging on the moment of history, it would appear to his disciples all were lost. It would look like this band of brothers had lost their captain before the fight even began. And yet in this frantic moment, Jesus was giving and modeling some final instructions. This would be the last time that the original disciples were going to all be together and Jesus wanted his disciples to catch something. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. Have you ever noticed how out of control we live? It doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take much to mess up our day. Our best thought plans, bad news from the family, a bogus review from the boss, betrayal of a friend. Our courage is gone. We're just like the disciples. And yet Jesus is still Jesus. He's in control of all things. He is the Lord. He's sovereign. And the point of this passage is that Jesus Christ 
is Lord over all, even when rebels betray him, even when his followers disappoint him, even when, he, when suffering is upon him. I just want to be a great encouragement to all of us this morning. You can trust Jesus. If you can trust Jesus with your eternity, you can trust Jesus with the darkest of nights. If you can trust Jesus with your soul, you can trust Jesus about today. And in John 18, in these few verses, we're going to see that Jesus is sovereign amid betrayal. Jesus is sovereign amid failure and weakness. Jesus is sovereign amid suffering. We see the sovereignty amid betrayal. It says in verse 1 that after Jesus had finished speaking with the 11 disciples, he led them out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to a familiar garden on the Mount of Olives. It's Passover week, and that means they have to stay within Jerusalem's jurisdiction. And this garden was a place of familiarity and of refuge. He says that Jesus often met there with his disciples, verse 2. So guess who also knew about this place? And verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew of this place. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with his lanterns and torches and, weapon, and weapons. You see, Judas determined that this was the right place to hand Jesus off to the authorities. This strange collection of Roman soldiers, temple police officers, and a former follower of Jesus Christ, they made their way to the garden. We're told that this collection of two to 600 people brought their lanterns and torches and weapons. Apparently, they believed that there was no such thing as overkill. Why would these Jews and Romans work together? Perhaps the mantra is true. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see, the Romans liked their comfortable kingdom and were ruthless in eliminating anything that threatened the Pax Romana. So when they had an opportunity to arrest one that had a considerable following with the blessing of the religious rulers, they're all in. The, the Jewish, Jewish rulers had, had been frustrated with Jesus for a long time. This flagrant disregard for their rules, especially the rules about the Sabbath, rankled the Jews, but his claim of deity made him public enemy number one. John 5 said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Judas did not receive that he hoped Jesus, uh, that Jesus would deliver. There are many theories about the betrayal motives of Judas. Some think that maybe he wanted Jesus to be the political deliverer, but on the most basic level, Judas was a thief. He struggled with greed. Maybe his betrayal was just for personal and selfish gain, but we know this thing, he will never escape from being thought as a traitor. The name Judas is synonymous with betrayal. I, I just, uh, we're, we're just having babies come to gospel grace left and right. I mean, everyone's having a baby right now at gospel grace, and not one of those mothers has named their child Judas because it's forever associated with with betrayal. But regardless of the motive, Judas positions himself with those that want to destroy Jesus. I mean, he had walked with Jesus. He had seen countless miracles and wonders. He'd listened to Jesus' teaching. And now look at verse 5. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Don't miss the irony. 
Hundreds of soldiers of differing factions led by Judas from the fortress Antonio to the garden with their clanking weapons and their burning lanterns and a full moon over their head and they're hoping to sneak up on the light of lights. The lights of this world come seeking the light of the world. I wonder who finds who. Well, that's the point. Jesus is sovereign in the midst of betrayal. You see, look at verse 4 explicitly. Jesus knowing what would happen to him. Nothing that happened that night took Jesus by surprise. He knew everything that was going to take place in the future. He knew everything in the past, everything in the past he knew prior. The Romans and the religious rulers did not shock him. As Jesus told his disciples back in Matthew, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised the third day. You see, Jesus knew that Judas was on the prowl that night. He knew that their place of refuge was not a secret place to hide. He could have taken his disciples to another safe house. But he knew Judas's plans and he shared them openly. Remember John 6, verse 64? But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who would betray him. He says in John 6, verse 70, Didn't I not cho choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John 13, verse 11, 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. He said in John 13, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, and it is he who I give this morsel of bread, and when I dipped it, and when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you're going to go do, do quickly. And so here's this betrayal. Jesus isn't rattled. Everyone else is falling apart. But Jesus comes forward in the middle of this circumstance and he says to them, whom do you seek? He didn't cower. He didn't wait for them to find him. He goes on the offense to declare plainly that he's sovereign over this intrusion and he's not intimidated by their swords and their torches. The captors reply, reply who they're looking for you see in the text of Scripture, he says this, Jesus of Nazareth, of all of the names they could have called him, they picked the humblest. Basically, they said, we're looking for Jesus from nowheresville. And yet, his response is thunderous. I am he. You see, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they, they drew back and fell to the ground, verse 6. I mean, what just happened? I mean, Jesus says, I'm he. Why do these soldiers who are trained to rule an empire fall down? How could one man shock and awe these Roman soldiers that were prepared for the red alert weekend of the Passover? Was it the force of Jesus Christ's personality? Did the humanity of Jesus intimidate these 400 soldiers? I don't think so. You see, in the simple phrase, I am he, Jesus reveals a bit of a sovereign power. It's not the first time that he claimed this phrase. 
If you remember back in John 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And these religious rulers, it goes on and says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. The religious rulers knew exactly what Jesus Christ was claiming. And they intended to stop it. In addition to revealing who he was, Jesus put some miraculous punch to his words. Those words knocked their, the soldiers on their can. He leaves them reeling for his next question, so he, so he hits them again. Whom do you seek? N- notice their absolute, absolute inability to take the initiative. They outnumbered Jesus hundreds to one, and yet they're dumbstruck. You, you would expect these soldiers to look at their future captive and say, quiet, we're asking the questions here. So I've got a question for you. Who's interrogating who? Who's being arrested? You see, the Romans, they wanted a Jesus who did good things but didn't threaten their empire. The Jews wanted a Jesus who submitted to them and their laws. Judas wanted a Jesus that provided things and positions of this world. They wanted a Jesus they could control, but Jesus confronts them with their de- uh, his deity and explains he is sovereign even in the midst of their betrayal. Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp something that when the world was coming down around them, Jesus is still in control. The disciples' brains, they're spinning. One of their own was a traitor. The Roman government was against them. The high priests were trying to destroy them. Jesus was being captured. It didn't look like he was going to bring in the kingdom or call angelic legions. Life is out of control, yet Jesus is still in control. So what does your life look like? Like right now. What's going on with you and your spouse? What about the kids and their school? Have you been betrayed by someone you love? Did someone fail to keep a promise they gave you? Are you being attacked unjustly? Does it seem like your world is falling apart? Are are you struggling to keep all your responsibilities in order? Are you doing your best and finding that your best is not good enough? Are you struggling to trust Jesus? Be reminded in the disciples' darkest day how the Lord wanted them to understand that he is sovereign in the midst of betrayal. But we see in this passage of Scripture that Jesus is also sovereign amidst failure and weakness. You see, Jesus Christ, or let me say it this way, the advantage advantage is Christ. He'd already knocked his opponents down. He'd forced them to answer his questions. Twice they said they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And so now he uses their words to accomplish his plan. Look at verse 8. He says, so if you seek me, if, if I'm the one you want, then let these men go. You see, John uses this as an opportunity to further express the divinity of Jesus because Jesus continues in verse 9, he says, or or John continues in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. And he'd spoken earlier in in the, the, the Last Supper of those whom you gave me, this is Jesus praying in John 17, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. 
You see, he prayed earlier, just 24 hours ago. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me, and I've guarded them, and not one of them's been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see, what's going on here is John 17 is recording this prayer of Jesus where Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, and then what happens is Jesus uses the circumstances to take the initiative and safeguard the lives of his disciples, he's fulfilling prophecy again. You see, there's failure and weakness taking place all around Jesus, and yet he's in control of the entire circumstance. I mean, do you know that the disciples were a broken crew? Did you know that? I mean, what had they done to deserve the protection of Jesus? Nothing but showcase their failure and weakness. You know, we live in a culture here in Utah that just emphasizes to try harder, work, do better. I mean, you just got to measure up. You just got to look better than everyone else. Come on, you can do it. Keep it up. And yet, how's it working out for our state? And if we're not careful, we can almost do that in, in Christian circles. We can preach in such a way that it's just moralistic teachings that, that you got to work harder and do better and try. And, and, and let me just say something. I, I really don't know where you're at. I don't know anyone's backstory here, but i got to believe there's some of us in this room that feel a little bit weak and feel like a failure. That we don't quite measure up. That we don't quite do enough. That we don't quite... Well, can I just... Can I just remind you about these disciples? I mean, you've gone through John. I mean, you're the people that have spent two years in John. What have you found about these disciples? They fight with each other about who's going to be greater. They're constantly afraid. They have an inability to understand the message of Jesus. They, their lack of spiritual power is exposed. I mean, just the day earlier, Philip and, and, and Thomas are corrected for not understanding the connection between Jesus and the Father. They're like, oh, if only we could see the Father. And Jesus Christ is like, okay, you've seen me? We find later that John runs, runs naked from the court. Thomas, well, he, he throws out these doubtful comments that he won't believe until he sees and feels the wounds of Jesus. And then, of course, there's Peter. But we've already been told he's going to deny the Lord three times. And, and, and G, Peter corrects Jesus. He's like, I don't know about that. Perhaps to show his confidence, he's just all geared up. I mean, we, we read the text, and here comes the, 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 the chief priest, and the chief priest got his, has his, his, uh, his servant Malchus, and, and then, you know, Peter lops off his right ear. I mean, isn't that fascinating what the Scripture tells us? Maybe he was aiming for the ear. I don't know. Maybe it's a glancing blow off of a helmet. Or maybe Peter's just a fisherman who's probably better at casting a net than swinging a sword. And yet in all of his bravado, Peter demonstrated he didn't understand the will of the Father, and as prophesied, he did deny Christ a few hours later. These disciples are a wreck, and the next few days aren't going to look any better. But when the dust settles... And the dots begin to connect. We begin to see what a mighty band of brothers these apostles become. Not one of them is lost. And all but one of them dies a martyr's death. James, the apostle of the Lord, is the second recorded martyr after Christ's death. And in Acts 12, we see that Herod Agrippa killed James 
with a sword. Peter is crucified upside down in 64 AD. Andrew is crucified six years after Peter. Thomas was thrust through with pine spears and burned alive in India. Philip was tortured, then crucified by Jews in, in Thyatira. Matthew's beheaded in northern Africa. Nathaniel is filleted, then crucified. James is cast down from the temple and beaten with a fuller's club. Simon is, is martyred by the governor of Syria. Thaddeus is eventually beaten with sticks. And from our 2020 vantage point, we see God's sovereign power in choosing and keeping the disciples of Christ. But how do you think they felt that night? Do you think Peter had a clue that he soon was going to preach to a crowd in Jerusalem and see 5,000 profess Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord? No way. And that's why this passage should, should be such a comfort to all of us in this room. You see, some of us are in chaos. The compass is spinning. We don't know which way is north. Perhaps some of us are trying to be faithful. Perhaps some of us are tempted to give up. You need to be reminded that Jesus is sovereign in the midst of failure and weakness. On the darkest day of his earthly ministry, he was not surprised by the failures and weaknesses of his followers. He demonstrates that the word of the Lord is to be trusted. He's sovereign in the midst of failure and weakness. And then he shows us he's sovereign amid suffering. As we've already seen, Peter was primed and ready to strike. John 13, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why, why, I, I can follow you now. Like, I, I can follow you now, Jesus, because guess what? I, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus now is the one that returned the favor and says, I don't know about that. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you before the roast, the, uh, say to you, the roaster, the rooster, the roaster, let's roast that rooster. The rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. I just got to believe that Peter heard those words. I'm going to deny Christ three times, not just once, not twice, but three times. No, I'm not. I won't do that. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be red alert. And so his courage was great, just like his blow was clumsy. Perhaps as he swung at Malchus, I mean, they, they had two swords, we know from other passages of Scripture. And Jesus almost patronizingly says, yes, that will be enough. Perhaps Peter hears those words and he's thinking as he swings this sword that, that somehow it's just going to elongate in some, some, some kind of miraculous sword and he's just going to lay waste to all of these soldiers or, or maybe somehow it's going to be like, like uh, uh, with Moses, right? And so maybe as Moses put his foot into the Red Sea and the waters part and, and maybe now and, and, and as he kind of just takes the lead and he kind of, you know, he initiates this and God's going to do something phenomenal uh, kind of like, like Jesus did with the loaves and the fishes. It was, just, it was just this little boy's lunch, and soon he fed 5,000, and then he fed 4,000. What Peter did not think and what he did not expect is for Jesus to look at Peter and to tell him, put away your sword, and to watch Jesus pick up this servant's ear and put it back on Malchus's head. Just a little parenthetical thought. I just got to believe that Malchus maybe lost some of his appetite to destroy Jesus. You got, you got to think that he's looking at his ear and it's now back on his head and he's going, okay, what just happened there? 
One man said, it's exceedingly thoughtless in Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword while he could not do so by his tongue. When he was called to make a confession, he denies Jesus, but now, unbidden by his master, he raises a riot. See, Jesus could have stepped aside from the suffering. Like, like he could have just said, I, no, the suffering, I'm not going to go through this. Remember what he was praying in the garden? He says, not my will, but thine be done. Here he is, he's praying, and, and there's such anguish in his heart, and there Jesus is just in anguish over the, the coming crucifixion, the, the, his coming painful death, and he's in anguish, and yet he says, he says, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Jesus Christ, we know in Matthew, he could have called more than 12 legions of angels. He could have called down judgment on all these people. It would have been just. And yet he holds back and he submits to the will of his Father. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' commitment to drink of the cup prepared for him by his Father calls to mind Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Do, do you remember this? Let this cup be taken from me. And now he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's been asking, please don't make me drink of the, the dregs of your wrath. That's the picture that it's, that's, that's supposed to be painted. It's, a, it's an Old Testament imagery where, where God is going to pour out his wrath and, and he's been sipping at his wrath in the very bottom of, of the juice, the bottom of the wine, the, the dregs of God's wrath have been swirling and to drink all of that bitterness and Jesus is saying, I will do the will of the Father. And we see here his commitment prepared by the Father, though the emphasis here, that firm resolution to accept what the Father gives him, better reflects the outcome of that prayer. He's saying, not my will, but thine be done. It is in any way to take that cup of wrath from me. And here, what does he do? He says, give me that cup, and I will drink the wrath of God that is coming to this world that sinners deserve, and yet I will take it. You see, that's what's going on here. You see, this substitutionary atonement, this, this wrath that is deserved by all mankind because of those sinful, willful choices of man to break God's law over and over and over. I mean, just look around us. How many of you are weary of evil and wickedness in this world? Would you lift your hand? Seriously, how many of you here have had some soul ache because of anything you read in the news? How long? How many of you have soul ache because of somebody else hurting you? How long? How many of you have soul ache? Because your own sinful choices. How many of you are ever weary of some of your own sinful thoughts and words and motives? Would you lift your hand? How long? How many of you are thankful that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away? 
How many of you are thankful that I'm not coming to you and preaching a message of, yeah, try harder, fight more, do better? How many of you are thankful that we're talking about a Jesus who said, put the sword away, I'll fight for you. Put your sword away, I'll die for you. Put your sword away because I'm the one, I'm the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. Oh, Peter, you don't get this. You don't understand this. Peter, you're laboring and you're trying to do all these things and you're trying to say all these things. No, Peter, you're bad. You're really bad, but I love you. And I'm going to die for you. So put your sword away, Peter. John said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received for my Father. And what Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that he is sovereign amidst suffering. He wants them to know that you can trust God in the midst of chaos. He wants you to know that you can believe God has a plan even when you can't see it. Look back and see the redemptive plan of Jesus and how clear it, and how foggy it was to the disciples that evening. And yet how clear it would be when Jesus would be raised from the dead and he give them of his spirit. And I just want everyone here to know that here at Church of the Valley, you can know this, that Jesus Christ is in control. You can trust the Lord. So looking back at this night in the garden, I want to ask you the question that Jesus asked. Whom do you seek? The Romans, the Jewish leaders, Judas, they wanted a Jesus they could control. You see, the Romans didn't want a Jesus who'd poke at their sin and demand their submission. The Jewish leaders wanted a Jesus that would affirm their extra-biblical teachings and stay quiet. Judas wanted a Jesus that would enable him to obtain his worldly desires. They wanted Jesus, a man with just a touch of divinity. Whom do you seek? If you're here and you're wrestling with the fact that you know you've broken God's law, you deserve the wrath of God, but you want forgiveness of God, not based on your behavior, but on grace through faith alone, then submit to Jesus this morning. But if you're here this morning as a true follower of Jesus Christ and your world is spinning, could you just remind yourself that Jesus is in control in the midst of betrayal weakness and suffering? Can you just remind yourself in the middle of this dark season when it's difficult to see the purposes of God that you can trust the promises of his word and you can push those truths into your brain and our response would be to simply submit, submit ourselves to Jesus this morning. So let's just bow our heads together. I want to invite the band to come on up. I'd like you just to take a moment here to pray. I'm going to slip to the back. The prayer team is going to come to the front. If you can just stand here, prayer team. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never quite understood how you could have a relationship with God through grace, through faith alone, not based on works, but just based on the finished work of Jesus. Just come and talk to one of these people on the prayer team. I see some over here. I'll go to the back. You just talk to somebody. Maybe you're a Christian who's just had a terrible week. It feels like all hell broke loose. 
and you just need a brother or a sister to pray with you, we'd love to avail ourselves. We can trust the Lord. He is in control. Let's bow our heads and pray as they play.